Listen to the word of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit for 40 days in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing in those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourselves down from here. For it is written, He will give his angels charge over you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him and said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Amen. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. This idea that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are is to be an idea of great comfort. First of all, it's an idea that Jesus identifies with us. So there's nothing that we face that now has not been taken into God itself. Because of Jesus becoming human, he knows what it means to be human. The full realm of human experience, including temptation. Now, what are the implications of Jesus facing temptation and not giving in for us? Okay, It has certainly has implications when we talk about Christ and Christ's death for us. The Bible talks a lot about that, but there are implications for us as people as well, because I think the temptations of Jesus are as much about us as they are about Jesus. Now, the extreme position of our tradition, the extreme Calvinism would say that we really have no freedom. We, ha- we by nature, sin. And we're guilty. Okay, that's that's, what they, that's the chaser with Calvinism. Not only do you have no choice, but you're still guilty. Okay. Okay, that's a position not without its problems. All right. Now, I would say various modern versions, whether they be from a biological or psychological perspective, would argue we have no freedom. Okay, we are a combination of how we were conditioned, our genetic makeup, all the different forces around us. And we are not accountable. That would be another extreme position. I would argue, as with most things, the truth is somewhere in the muddled middle. And I think the Bible actually talks about the idea of the fact that we as humans have a propensity to sin. That without the grace of God, we cannot do this on our own, right? But there's also something very real about the idea that you don't have to give in to the temptations. 
and that there are ways to think about this that helps set us free. Now, we have to be, I think, wise about this and, 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 and a little more sophisticated. For instance, we know stuff now that we used to not know. For instance, addictions. I mean, it's more and more, it's important to think of addictions as a brain disease. Right? The same thing with behavior that comes out of mental illness. Okay? We don't particularly judge someone if they have a heart condition or arthritis. We don't make particular pronouncements. Okay? All right, because I have arthritis, I can't throw a ball as far as I used to be able to throw it, so therefore I must be evil, right? No, we don't say that. Okay? I never was much of a, I wasn't very good, I never had a great arm anyway. But no, you've got arthritis, that limits your, your throwing motion. Okay? All right? Well, the same may be true about addictions. All right? It's a brain disease. Okay? Now, again, it's more complicated than, than we want to make it. But we realize that, um, you know, I know people who certainly didn't want to become addicted to pain medicine. They were put on the pain medicine after a surgery or after an injury. And these things were very addictive. A guy worked at one of my churches. He was a industrious guy working two jobs to take care of his family. Started taking uppers so he could get through his second job. You know, two years later, he's on the streets of Chester as a crack addict. Last night, you know, we were at the mission. And there is an old saying, but, but, the, but by the grace of God go I. Well, no, that's not true at all, okay? Those people there last night, they were there by the grace of God, just like we were there by the grace of God. And what got people, what, what had them end up there in that mission is a very complicated thing. Their opportunities, their obstacles, on an average, were much greater than what you and I face. It's not an excuse, it's a reality. Even things like sexual orientation, what we used to think and as being maybe a perversion or merely a bad choice or, or whatever, we know that's a little more complicated, right? And so that should affect the way we think about freedom, okay? There are a lot of people who don't choose to be certain ways that they are, and we have to we have to make that calculation in how we talk about these things as Christians. But the temptation of Christ, particularly during this time of Lent, and it's a very appropriate text to begin our Lenten journey, actually shows us not only what the nature of the temptations we face, but a way out. There may be a lot of things we don't have any control over. <laughs> All right. But there are some things that are very basic to what it means for us to be followers of Christ, even what it means for us to be human, that we do have some say in by the grace of God. You know, what strikes me about Christ, and I, I've always, I always think of uh, Martin Scorsese's film, The Last Temptation of Christ, uh, which I think was a very fine film. It was very controversial at the time. But what it basically shows us that the last temptation of Jesus was the temptation for an ordinary life, right? He was tempted like us in all ways, so why wouldn't Jesus want to have a wife and a family? Even in the garden, which is in the Bible, he asked for the cup to pass by him. He doesn't want to necessarily go through this. And that, that to me, makes him more human, right? 
Who wants to be beaten to death? Who wants to be taken from life in their prime? Now, he said yes to God, and he said yes to us, but nonetheless, that was a real temptation. It was kind of an ordinary temptation, right? <laughs> Just a temptation to an ordinary life. Now, it's easy to think that these temptations in Luke 4 are extraordinary temptations, right? The devil doesn't usually show up to any of us, right, <laughs> and, and, and offer us a deal, at least not <laughs> in the flesh. I think many of us make deals with the devil, but more metaphorically. But at the heart of these seemingly extraordinary events are really kind of ordinary temptations, And I think in many ways, almost all the temptations you and I face are summed up in these three temptations that Jesus faces. Though they come in quite extraordinary fashion, they are quite ordinary and common at the root. We face some aspect of these three temptations every day and have devoted a considerable amount of our energy of se to selling our soul to them. Lent is a good time to develop keener sensitivities at the sinfulness of sin, to see that the way we lose our way is in small steps, not giant steps. Lent is a good time to remember we are forgiven, to allow Christ to pick us up, and to get back on the road with him. Now, the first temptation is to turn stones to bread. And it's kind of an understandable one. Jesus is hungry, right? Forty days he's been fasting. And on surface, what would be the harm to use his power to give himself something to eat? Well, in the broadest sense, the temptation to turn stones into bread is to treat the material world as a source of ultimate happiness, right? What is Jesus' response? You know, man shall not live by bread alone. I'm not put here to use my power to feed myself. And so our temptation to turn stones into bread is really around us misusing the power God has given us, the gifts God has given us, to treat the material world as, it's as if it's ultimate. So it could be about misuse of food, it can be about the misuse of alcohol, material things, money, sex, etc. In a very real sense, many folks have reduced their God-given talents to the most basic of pursuits. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with the material world. The material world is neutral. In many ways, it's a good. It's when we treat it as the ultimate. And there's so many different ways we can, can apply this to our contemporary world. But for me, what I want to talk about, at least around this, and you may be thinking of your own ways you're tempted to, to use your strength and energy for lesser things, is this kind of what is being called workism. Matter of fact, there was an article by Derek Thompson in The Atlantic a couple weeks ago called The Religion of Workism. I'm going to quote him. The decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty. Some people worship political identities. Others worship their children. But everybody worships something. And workism 
is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. What is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. And the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. It begins innocent enough, right? <laughs> Fifth, you know, kindergarten. What do you want to be when you grow up? And then suddenly the pressure gets a little, little stronger. So what college do you want to go to in order that you may maximize your potential as the job you want to go to? And then it becomes who we are, right? What's the first question we often ask people? What do you do? Now, again, it's not that our work is bad. Matter of fact, one of the great contributions of our tradition is to tell people that our work is our calling. So that work can be a good thing because it's given by God. So a ditch digger who is a follower of God, their work is as sanctified as, you know, a clergy and everything in between. But what has happened in our world, and, it, and there's, it's complicated, and you could talk about it from a sociological perspective, is that work has become the end-all, be-all. Most of us who are professionals work too much. We work too many hours. All of you probably have experienced one point or not, those of you who are part of corporate America, where more work is, expe is expected from fewer people, right? And for the average worker with less benefit. And so this idea that our meaning can be found in our work is a deceptive temptation. Because what happens when you hit the ceiling? <laughs> what happens when they decide they no longer need you? What happens on the day you realize that they, you actually are a commodity? <laughs> you are a commodity. But they care about you until they check the next quarter's earning projections. Now, the good news is that we never were our work. Okay. Our identity is not in what we do. Our identity is in Christ. But I think we have to be very careful in the 21st century not to let all these forces out there make us define our worth by what we do. That is one of the most powerful gods of the modern world, and it is a false god. Now, Luke's gospel, Luke changes the order. I mean, logically, the order should be the temptation to throw yourself off the temple and then bow down, but Luke changes it for reasons that are Luke's, and we won't necessarily get into that. But the second temptation is the temptation to bow a knee to Satan, which is, I think, the misuse of power. 
Okay. Now, we misuse our power in lots of different ways. For instance, every time I drive on the expressway, I'm tempted to misuse my power. Okay. What do we do in human relationships, right? We all know the word or phrase that can wound the people we love the most. That's all misuse of power. I think that one of the most serious misuse of powers right now is the abuse of words. And this too, this too was from an article, an editorial recently in the New York Times that talked about what they thought the biggest problem in America today is not incivility or intolerance, um, but the idea that we hold other people in contempt, which is a noxious brew of anger and disgust. And not only do we hold contempt for other people's ideas, but also for other people. In the words of philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, contempt is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. There was a study done about four years ago, and it's gotten worse, where the amount of contempt that Democrats and Republicans hold for each other is on the same level of the Palestinians and the Israelis. Now, I know a lot about the Palestinian and the Israelis. I've spent a lot of time working on that issue, I've spent a lot of time in the region. That's bad. <laughs> if we're at that level, that's bad. You know, to me, one of the problems with contempt is not only does it make it does not only does it make compromise impossible, okay, but what it does is it, it damages both the person who I have contempt for, right? Because if I have contempt for you, that's a dehumanizing thing. In essence, that means I don't really think you have a validity to be here, to exist. But the very act of having contempt for other people affects us physiologically and psychologically. Christians do not have the option to write human beings off for any reason. For me, perhaps in this day of such divisiveness in our country and even in families, matter of fact, I've there was a study, one in six families have someone they're not speaking to because of politics right now. Okay. I mean, there's, another, there's enough other reasons we have to deal with you know, among our families. Okay. All right. But that's kind of remarkable, isn't it? That we have allowed political discourse to even divide families against families. That's happened before in our world, in our culture, in our country. It was called the Civil War. It was very bad, if you don't remember that. Okay? I don't remember it. As Christians, it doesn't mean we can't have opinions. It doesn't mean that we can't disagree strongly about things that we feel strongly about. It doesn't mean we can't call people out for bad ideas or for prejudices, or for racisms, or things that hurt other people, what it does mean is you don't have the right to write anybody off. Every human being is someone created in the image of God. To have contempt for another person is to sin against God. 
That's hard. But I think that's a power that we need to get back under control. And as Christians, we need to model it, not be on the forefront of it. And then finally, this idea to throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. There was a legend in the time of Jesus that when the Messiah would come, that the Messiah would descend from the pinnacle of the temple. So Satan is basically saying, you know, I don't know what God has planned for you, but why don't you just take a shortcut, okay? Jump off this temple, float down, and everybody will go, hey, there you are, right? Well, this is the temptation of status. Giving other people the power of who you are, of deciding who you are, of being admonished to what people think of you. Now, I could preach a whole sermon about the tyranny of social media, but I'm not going to. <laughs> but you can think about it. Instead, I want to tell you a story. My oldest grandson, Benjamin, is very intelligent. And uh, he, of course, I think that, but he is. All right, so. Uh, Ben's seven. And Ben has decided what he wants to do when he grows up is to own an island that all of us in the family can live on, both sides of the family. All right. And he's already started assigning jobs to different people. So he and I are having a discussion. And we're driving along, and I, you know, part of my job in the world is to, is to make Benjamin think. So, um, and, uh, so we're driving along, and Ben says, yeah, I'm going to have this island. And I said, oh, all right, well, who's going to be in charge of the island? Well, I am, Pop-Pop. Well, why should you be in charge of the island? Well, it's my island. Well, I know, but don't, shouldn't people have a say? For instance, what if people wanted me to be in charge of the island? He goes, Pop-Pop, you're probably going to be in heaven, so you won't be on the island. So thank you very much for that. But I just <clears throat> for that reason alone, I'm going to stay alive so I can embarrass you in the future. All right? I said, but shouldn't people have a say in who is on the island? For instance, your mom, very gifted person, very capable. Maybe your mom should be in charge of the island. At this point, he could see that the island vision was starting to be troubled by Pop Pop. I said, shouldn't people have a vote who's on the island? He goes, yes, all right, people should have a vote as long as they vote for me. <laughs> and I go, well, therefore, there's only one vote that counts then. He goes, yes. Okay. There's only one vote that counts when it comes to who you are, your sense of self, your sense of worth. It's certainly not social media. And frankly, it's certainly not even the people you care about, certainly not your coworkers and your neighbors, but even the people who maybe raised you, the people who you spend your life with. As important as what they think is, there's only one vote that matters, and that's God's vote. You don't have to keep throwing yourself off of whatever pinnacle you're throwing yourself off to prove anything to anybody. That temptation will only lead you to unhappiness. 
The only vote that matters about who you are is from the one who created you, who gave up everything and died that you could be recreated. The only opinion that ultimately matters is God. That's true for you and me. That's true for those men we served last night. That is a truth that can set you free. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let us stand together and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed.